0: We know that we are compelled by Christ to move beyond just these four walls as a church. And we want to be a church that continues to look beyond our walls with the love of Jesus to bless the socks off this community. And as a church, we feel led to be a church that is for the good of our city. Well, good morning, Ascent. Uh, my name is Lindsay, as you have heard, and I am thrilled uh, to be here with you this morning. I have been so grateful for your friendship and partnership and the camaraderie of your staff and your community over the last few years. Uh, I recognize that inviting a guest to speak is a great sign of trust, right? Sharing this space with someone can feel sort of risky and so Bill's invitation to come and share with you today means a great deal to me and I don't take that lightly and so thank you so much for your warmth and your hospitality this morning. Uh, Before moving into my current role, I worked as a youth pastor for years and so this just might be the ex-youth pastor in me a little bit but since I am practically a stranger to most of you, I thought that we would start by just getting to know each other a little bit. So I am originally from Arizona and I moved here for my undergrad at CU Boulder. Okay. Any other buffs? There we are. There we are. I love it. Uh, objectively, just the greatest school in the state, right? Objectively. Um, I have been married to my husband Cole for seven years and we, uh, our son will be one this summer and thanks. Yeah. Parenthood is wild. (laughs) It is beautiful, but it is a, a trip. I have 1 million pictures of my son doing the exact same thing <laughs> in every single one. And uh, I will share those with you if you want to see them later. Uh, a few other things that you might be interested to know about me is I love teen fiction novels. So think Twilight, Hunger Games, all that nonsense. I absolutely love it. Um, I My favorite show to binge watch is Law & Order SVU. And I know that I risk losing at least half the room in saying this, but... I don't think the office is funny. <laughs> I know. And I have tried to love it. But if Jen can look past it and still be my friend, then I know I know it's possible. So that is me. And uh, let's now get into our series. So for the last few weeks, you have been moving through the book of Ephesians. This ancient letter written by a church planner named Paul, who was one of the founders of this first century church. In Ephesus, Paul is writing to primarily Gentile people. That means non-Jewish people. So this tells us that they didn't share the history and the heritage of the Jewish people. They haven't grown up hearing stories of Abraham and Moses and of David. So their worldview, their ideas, their rhythms of life haven't been shaped by Jewish law or by God's ways. And so we have these new believers who are culturally and ethnically very different from Paul and other Jewish believers, discovering this faith that is brand new to them. And they're discovering what it means for their life, practically, for how to raise their kids, for how to handle their money, for how to spend their time, for how to view their future. And they're learning what it means for their life together as this community of people who have banded together over this Jesus person. So we now find ourselves in chapter four, and it's at this point that we sense a bit of a shift in the letter. Paul's tone becomes, so what? If everything he has just spent the last three chapters explaining is true, well then, so what? Well, what have we heard in the last three chapters? We have heard so far in the last three weeks, we've explored that belief, trust, confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it means that we gain a new position, a new identity in Christ, that we are no longer just in real estate or in finance or in parenting or in school or even in Louisville, but we are in Christ. We are given a new identity as the family of God. This is now who we are. We belong to him. And we become a new people. A new people set apart for the purpose of making earth as it is in heaven. This whole new humanity. This is what John talked about last week, that we are now the body of Christ, the church. Reflecting and imaging and carrying with us the light and healing and the transformation of Jesus we actually then become the very dwelling place of God. The spirit of Jesus makes his home in us, animating our being, transforming our patterns and our habits, guiding and counseling and leading our every step. So if all of that is true, If resurrection really does make us the family of God and the body of Christ and the home of the spirit, well, so what? What does this mean for how we should live and relate to one another? Ephesians is really a vision for our life together, not just what Jesus made possible for each of us individually, but what is possible for us as a people, a people who are now interconnected. Paul writes that our relationships and our communities of faith, that they are to be marked by unity. That as the body of Christ, as the church, we are supposed to demonstrate and to display, to model to the rest of the world a different way, an entirely new way, a way of harmony and connection and oneness. Oneness with God and with each other. Ah, well, there is much of the world's confusion then and skepticism of us, of Christians right now. It explains that a bit, doesn't it? Or maybe if we're being honest, this is even what some of our own hesitation or hurt or disengagement is about. Because unity and harmony and peace Maybe that has not been our experience, but especially in the last two and a half years, maybe we would use words instead like fractured and divided and polarized to describe the state of things. Our relationships with people have been splintered. We have grown estranged from spaces and labels and institutions that at one point we felt very safe and at home in. Our own hearts have become calloused and we have grown tired and exhausted. On a good day, I think we could all acknowledge that we don't want things to stay this way, that what Paul is preaching, it sounds good in theory, right? that we don't wanna devolve any further. We don't wanna become more bitter and more detached. But then that family member inevitably says something offensive on the phone or your neighbor puts out a new political sign, or social media lights up over the most recent controversy, and we're right back again to wondering if things could ever really be different. I think part of our struggle with unity is that it can feel kind of elusive, like this utopian fantasy that is just out of reach, or it sounds like a nice idea, but practically, is it really achievable? But go with me on this just for a moment. Many of us have only ever dreamed of a world where the Denver Nuggets would play in the NBA Finals. <laughs> okay, for decades. That has been a dream, a far-fetched hope, maybe for the optimist or the die-hard fan. But for my son, he will only ever know a world where the Nuggets play in the NBA Finals, where they are a respected contender and has memories of watching his parents lose their mind at every game in the series. That is the world he is growing up in. To bring this a little closer to home, in the world my grandmother grew up in, it was inconceivable to think that she could open up a bank account in her own name. It was inconceivable to think that a woman would hold the vice presidency, That instruction or encouragement from the word of God would come from someone who looked and sounded like her. That felt inconceivable, but that is the only world that I know. This is to say the world as we know it divided and torn and splintered. It doesn't have to stay that way. The world that we dream of, the world that Paul dreamed of, where communities of faith are marked by grace and peace and wholeness, that is what we get to participate in building as the people of God. And we can believe in a more unified church, in a more unified world, because it is not all up to us. It doesn't all depend on human progress or our good intentions or even our intelligence, but it is ultimately a work of the spirit of Jesus in his people who have chosen to yield to it and to corroborate its moving with our participation and our service. And so I wanna spend the rest of our time looking at Paul's vision for unity here in chapter four, these three things that Paul tells us it's gonna require. And then I wanna look at what threatens those things or what maybe gets in the way of this vision for unity. So first, Paul begins by describing what unity looks like interpersonally. So in our families, in our romantic, and platonic and per professional relationships. We're going to pick up in verse two. This is chapter four. He writes, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So the Greek word used for humble here means lowliness of mind. And what that is really describing is a recognition of the worth and value in someone else. So here is how this lowliness of mind operates. When walking into a room, instead of posturing or performing to try and assert our worth and our value, when we walk into a room or when we log on to that Zoom call or show up at the park with our kids or go to that birthday dinner for a friend, When we walk into that space, lowliness of mind is first, first acknowledging the dignity of others as image bearers of the creator. This is of course connected, what we learned from Maurice a few weeks ago, that humility, it's having the assurance of our position, assurance of ourselves in Christ. So we don't have to go looking for that validation in others by trying to puff up our performance or our connections or our successes. We are secure. Humility isn't devaluing yourself, but it is exalting the value that we see in others. So humility or lowliness of mind, it works like this. It's not thinking, how do I make sure that you see me? It's instead thinking, how do I make sure I see you? How do I make sure that I truly see you? And then the word used here for gentle means moderation. And it's an important distinction that we understand gentle is not a synonym for weakness. I think sometimes these connotations, they they make us resistant to wanting to embrace a quality like gentleness because we think it means we have to shrink back becoming stifled or demure, but that's not what Paul is getting at here. If you are someone with a strong personality, with conviction and confidence, gentleness does not mean forfeiting your passion or your strengths, it's about using that strength in moderation, using that strength in wisdom and discernment. It is primarily about not using that strength to coerce and bully others into getting what you want. It is no coincidence that Paul chooses to couple these two words together here because this is how we see Jesus describe himself when he is expressing his very own heart, his his essence or his nature. In Matthew 11 he says, "I am humble and gentle in heart." We see lowliness of mind and strength in moderation personified. We see it embodied in the life of Christ. And so if we're curious about what this really looks like, we need examples of what it is to be humble and gentle. We only need then to look more closely at the life of Jesus, his patterns, his rhythms, the way he related to others, his posture and his choices. Paul goes on to say, be patient with one another. Make allowance for each other's faults. The word for patience here is long-suffering. So suffer other people. Suffer alongside one another. Endure the aggravation, the discomfort, and sometimes the annoyance that other people bring into our lives. I think it's important here to clarify Paul is not advocating that we ignore harmful behavior, that we subject ourselves to toxic, abusive, and hurtful people and systems in the name of Jesus. That would be a grave misunderstanding of this teaching. But Paul is calling us to notice and evaluate our own reactivity, our own short temper and irritability, to be introspective about what someone else's behavior or preferences or perspective, what about that other person is sending me into a tailspin in seconds? What is making me so defensive and reactive and enraged? Paul's admonition to patience, it calls us to examine what in us is inhibiting our ability to stay calm and steady and patient what stories or wounds or traumas need tending to so that our own reactivity doesn't jeopardize our ability to live peacefully with other people who are also flawed and also broken. What I want us to notice here in verse 2 is that unity among one another, it is going to require the character of Christ, the character of Christ. Gentleness, humility, patience. These are all qualities that we also see echoed in the fruit of the Spirit. This means that they don't come out of our own personality or just by trying harder or deciding to just be more gentle. But this oneness, it is born out of the Spirit's work in each of us. It is because we are in Christ and his spirit is at home in us, that our posture towards one another changes, that it softens. It helps us to see the dignity in all people. It helps us to stay tender when it would be so much easier to just armor up. It helps us remain calm and clear as we experience the offenses and faults of others. It helps us realize that we have to make allowance for others because we too are in need of allowance. So then we ask ourselves, what gets in the way? What is a threat to the character of Christ in us? Well, that would be pride. I love the way author and pastor Rich Velotis talks about sin. He explains that sin orients us inward towards ourselves. It turns us away from God and away from others. This is what pride does. It keeps us from humility and gentleness and patience. When we elevate ourselves or when we protect ourselves by cutting others down, when we minimize our shortcomings in order to emphasize the flaws of others, when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we aren't also in process, we cut off connection We cut ourselves off from that staying power, that staying power that we need to hold on to one another, to maintain oneness. And so we remember the way that Jesus has been gentle and lowly with us, drawing nearer to us in our missteps and mistakes, the way he suffered all of our brokenness. We remember his staying power. That he didn't abandon us when it meant facing death and darkness and separation. This protects us from pride by seeing ourselves and our need for Jesus clearly. So, unity, it's not to be confused with politeness or just niceness, because those things are self serving, they're veneer, they're fake. But humility and gentleness and long-suffering, it is the profound consideration of others because we have the character of Christ in us, turning us towards others instead of turning us inwards, towards ourselves. Paul goes on to talk about what unity then looks like corporately as the body of Christ across denominations and traditions, and all of these different expressions of faith. He says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to the one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. Now, remember we briefly talked about how the Ephesians, they don't have all of that Jewish law and upbringing and doctrine to help shape their idea of faith. But Paul was Jewish. And so he would have known that it was a great point of significance in the story of God's people that God is one. This is an important defining characteristic of God, the creator making him different from all of these other gods and goddesses that the people in the ancient world were worshiping. The Old Testament puts it like this in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, people of God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God is one being, creator, sovereign ruler and Lord. And God is also three, Three persons or relations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is truly the mystery of God. And without getting too bogged down or confused by some of the theological weeds on this, because thinking about it too long makes my brain want to explode, Paul is affirming here for the Ephesians and for us that we have one God. God. And God has one will or one mind. So his desire, his will for the world and for his people, it proceeds from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. So Paul is stressing that God cannot be divided up into parts. He can't betray himself. He can't act against or apart himself. So Paul here is recalling this unity This continuity, this harmony of the triune God, three and one. And so here we see that oneness, oneness in the church, it is going to require Trinitarian perspective. This is why we see Paul using Trinitarian language here. We are one body because there is one spirit of Jesus. And that one spirit raised the one Christ Jesus from the dead. And that one Jesus was sent from the one father, bringing us into his family forever. So Paul is making sure to remind us here that it is in who we believe. It is who we believe in that unites us. What unifies us is not what building we go to on Sunday morning for church. It's not that we've kept all the same rules or made sure not to break certain rules. What unites us is a power outside of ourselves, and it equalizes us under the same consequence, that without the power of Jesus, without his saving power, we have nothing. Under the cross, we are all in the same need of saving. So then even in the ways that we struggle to understand each other, even in the ways that we disagree and that we differ, the truth is that this is what binds us together. So then what is the threat to this perspective? This perspective about a triune God. What is the threat? I think it's absolutism. Absolutism I'm going to quote Rich Philotus again because he just says it so, so well. Absolutism is when we have made things absolute that God never intended to be absolute. Expressions of worship, style, preference, even doctrine. Where have we reordered and deprioritized the saving work of Jesus Christ? Paul reminds us that unity, it's not willful ignorance. It's not ignoring all of these differences. It is choosing to remember the bottom line, that faith in a triune God, that is what connects me to you. No matter how you vote, no matter your pathology, by grace, through faith in Jesus, we are connected. We belong to each other. And now I cannot just let go of you. Because we are one. So Paul says we are one body, we are one family, we share one faith. But this does not mean that we are all the same. Oneness does not mean sameness. Paul goes on in verse 7. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So I want to point out just a few things here. Paul makes it clear that these gifts are from Christ. So they are given out of his generosity. So they are not earned by our own effort. Or by our proving, or something that we just happen to get right. And then he also states their purpose, these gifts or these unique capabilities, they are for enriching our life together as a community. They are not for the purpose of elevating the person with that gift, they are not for the individual to build up their reputation or build up their platform or build up their success, but they are to build up the body of Christ. So it should also be said that the gifts Paul mentions here, this list is not exhaustive, but there are multiple lists that we see across the new Testament that together feature a a variety of distinct gifts. And so no list is complete all on its own. And this, I believe, reveals something to us about God. It paints a picture of his complexity and his dimension that God generously graces us with a variety of different gifts. And so here we see the way unity requires celebrating difference. Celebrating difference. This means your gift, it is necessary to the vitality and the flourishing of this church, of your community. And you think, well, I don't have a gift, I don't think. Well, let's look back at verse 7. Paul writes, God has given each one of us, every member, every extension of the body has been graced with a gift. And then maybe you go, well, I'm not a pastor, and I'm not a teacher, and I'm not an evangelist. Like, I don't even know what that means. How could I really be of contribution here? In order to experience the kind of oneness that Paul is describing, it means that we have to stop drawing lines of division between clergy, which would be church staff, and lay people or the congregation, building up the body of Christ contributing to the work of healing and transformation and restoration. It is not reserved for the elite or for church staff or for people with seminary degrees. Ministry is not just Bill's job or Beth's job or Whitney's job or Maggie's job. Ministry is something every person belonging to God is invited into. You have been given a gift And that gift is for the benefit, the encouragement, the health of your community and for the good of your city. And so what threatens celebrating difference? Envy and comparison. We don't see Paul ranking gifts here in Ephesians 4 or in any of the passages where he lists them, but we certainly do this. When we begin to wish that we had the thing somebody else is good at, when we wish we had someone else's gift because it's more attractive or glamorous or desirable, we then wind up depriving our own community from experiencing the thing we were given to share. We deprive our community of mercy or hospitality or discernment or wisdom. Or exhortation, because we neglect the thing we were given to share because we're trying to chase the thing somebody else was given to share. Or we just start looking around and comparing ourselves to others. And when the thing we are good at, when the thing we have been given isn't as visible, doesn't get as much acknowledgement or doesn't come with as much notoriety, we figure, well, maybe I should be trying to be like somebody else. But God has not determined that some gifts are more valuable than others. It's us. We have done that. And so we begin chasing uniformity, all trying to be the same, instead of chasing synchronicity. Think about this like an orchestra, right? What makes a symphony so moving and so captivating is that all of these different instruments are playing in sync. The music would not come alive the same way if the orchestra was only made up of violins, or clarinets, or trumpets, or cellos. The beauty is in each of these different instruments doing their part, contributing their unique sound alongside all of the others. That is what makes it incredible. It is the same with us. Oneness is not sameness but it is the deliberate celebration of the very distinct and the very different gifts and purposes and talents and passions that God has given his people to enhance our life together. And so according to Paul, unity is not just for the idealist. It is not just a far-fetched dream for the optimist. And it's not only for the theologian who wants to theorize and intellectualize, but oneness, it is a very actionable, tangible, felt experience for the people belonging to God, people who are in Christ. And so I want to invite us this morning to examine our own hearts. Have we grown resigned to the world the way it is? a world fractured by pride and factionalism and alienation? Have we grown cynical, believing that things could really never be different, that things will just never change? We are a people defined by our belief in the impossible. We believe in resurrection. We believe fundamentally that what was or what is doesn't always have to be that what is dead does not have to remain dead, but that the very power that raised Christ Jesus, it has made its home in us, giving us hope for this kind of transformation, that our communities could be marked by wholeness, by peace, by oneness. Though Paul is clear, it's going to require that we yield the spirit in our life, that it's going to take the character of Christ, this Trinitarian perspective and celebrating difference. We have to get serious about the things that are holding us back, about the pride in our lives, keeping us from turning outward in humility and gentleness and patience to get serious about absolutism that has overshadowed the grace that we all are undeserving of, but that Jesus has so freely poured out, unifying this one body under his one body that was broken and crucified and then brought back to life. To look seriously at our tendency to grasp for what we don't have, and to compare ourselves to others. Paul's vision, it does not have to remain a dream. It does not have to remain inconceivable. I believe that my even being here this morning is a glimpse. It is evidence of Jesus in us and among us. That what a profound gift and how refreshing for me To preach a message on Ephesians 4 and to have lived it, to have experienced this kind of oneness and unity because of your commitment to the kingdom, to the way of Jesus. Kindred and ascent, we are not identical. We are not exactly the same. We have different personalities and cultures, different expressions of worship and community and all these different things. But we are one. We are united under the cross and we do belong to each other. So let us be Paul's dream come true. That a world of hostility and alienation does not have to be the world we leave behind. Let us return to the cross because under it and through it and because of it, we become one. United in his sacrifice, filled with his spirit. Let us not let go of each other, but make every effort to turn towards each other. Remembering that unity is not apathy, but unity is a commitment to love. It is a commitment to the good of others. It is a commitment to the good of your city. So Ascent, would you pray with me to close? God, thank you for who you are, that you are good, that you are kind, that you are deeply compassionate and gentle. God, I thank you that you pursue us, that you come after us, that you desire to know us and share pieces of who you are with us. God, I pray for those of us this morning who have been hurt, alienated, left out and estranged by all of the hostility and division in our world. God, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you would inspire us, that this does not have to be the way it is, God, that our communities of faith, that our relationships and our families do not have to continue to be torn apart and fractured, but because your son, Jesus, alive in us, makes real transformation possible, that he would make us tender towards one another, that we would soften, that we would put down our defenses and our armor and that we would truly ask, how can I make sure that I see you? Jesus, I pray that you would unify us, that you would connect us in meaningful ways. Jesus, give us hope, hope for the future. Jesus, we love you and we need you and I pray this in your name.